the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me today is not Nadia Oxford. We're giving her a, a day off because we are going to be going a little heavy into the other side of the RPG spectrum, namely the Western side. We're going to be talking about a game that we should have been covering a little earlier, but I mean, it got thrown off owing to the fact that I was on vacation and all that. But we're making amends. We're talking about Pillars of Eternity 2, Deadfire, and joining me today is special guest Doc Burford, who is a regular contributor over on US Gamer. Say hi, Doc. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is your second appearance on US Gamer, and you have a really interesting outlook on games, I find. You you have very strong opinions. Your long threads on Twitter, on game design and such have kind of become legend. You're a game designer yourself? Yep, yep. Made a game called Paratopic, working on a few other projects right now. Yeah, and Paratopic was extremely well-received over on Itch.io. So uh, I, I just find that you have a grasp of what goes into making a game better than a lot of people. Um, and so you've been on this podcast before, but I, I was just wondering if you could like share a little bit of your history and a little bit of your outlook on kind of the RPG genre so people know where you're coming from. Well, my own history with it, I don't actually remember the first RPG I played. It's been so long. But uh, over the years, I kind of picked up, you know, here and there. I think Dragon Age Origins was like the first one where I really sunk my teeth into the genre. Mm. Of course, I've completed all the Witcher games multiple times. Um, I've played, you know, a bunch of like really weird stuff, like War and Warriors, Joan of Arc, or something like that. That's I think I got it from like a Maximum PC demo disc originally. <laughs> you know, I've done, chased down some weird stuff. I'm trying to get through uh, like a lot of the classic isometric RPGs right now. You know, Black Isle and Obsidian and stuff. And then uh, my compatriots on Paratopic have all been pushing me to play Vampire: The Masquerade Bloodlines. So that's probably going to be the next next big rpg i play experiencing all of the classics pretty much i just got the uh like the final fantasy games on my vita so i'm gonna be checking nice. them out at some point too yeah nadia and i were lamenting how hard it is to get final fantasy all on one platform I like kind of your vita is the best bet right because you can get uh, i think you can get the original final fantasy one and two on there you can get four certainly uh, i don't think you can get five but you got six and then you can get seven, eight, nine, and ten. So yeah, that, that that's right. probably a, the most complete you're going to get with any one particular console, which is a real shame, in my opinion. Because you can, you can get them on Steam. I think hmm. almost all of them, if not all of them. Um, oh yeah, I suppose because I don't think one and two are there. Yeah, and I think they're the mobile ports too. So they're kind yeah, of four, five, and six are not ideal on Steam. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, what a shame. But uh, Dragon Age Origins, uh, it's interesting that you brought that up because I'm in the process of writing a feature, which will definitely be up by the time this podcast go live, which is about uh, campfires and games or camping in games um, right. and kind of the significance of that over the years. And uh, it was inspired by the fact that Dark Souls Remastered will have come out on Friday as of the re release of this podcast. And of course bonfires are such an iconic part of that series in particular that it got me thinking about how they've appeared and been represented in other games and their significance and uh bonfires uh, the bonfire is an extremely important part of dragon age origins as well yeah it's it's one of my favorite parts of that game is just visiting the campsite talking hmm. to people stuff like that a lot of games try to do those sort of really big bases where you walk around all the different wings and try to find everybody but there's an intimacy in origins campfire that i really enjoy everyone's just kind of right around it um and you can just kind of you know talk to them and you can see the rest of your team in the background it that's always been one of my favorite places in games it's very cozy cozy spaces are kind of at a premium i think in games we don't have enough of them I completely agree. Uh, an, a similar scene is in Final Fantasy 15, where all of the characters gather around the campfire 
after a hard day of adventuring. And I, I've always said that the campfire in that game is where the game really comes together in a really meaningful way. Um, and I would say that that's the same with Dragon Age Origins because effectively the campfire is functioning the same as the Normandy from Mass Effect, right? But right. it is also, um, as you said, more intimate, right? You're around the light of the campfire. The character, the way the characters hang out around the campfire tells you of their personalities. Uh, Morgan's kind of off in the shadows. She's not even coming into the light. And then meanwhile, you ha- as your kind of alliances grow and as you progress further in the game more and more people are appearing in your camp and i just think it's a really great visual indicator of progress and also a great opportunity to build up your characters yeah it's fantastic yeah uh but you the so the reason you're on this podcast in the first place is, as i said was that you're you revealed pillars of eternity dead fire and you gave it a a very good review uh you gave it a 4.5 out of 5 and um, so I, I think the first question I kind of have for you is just what grabs you immediately about this game? That's a good question. Um, I think one of the very first things was, is I was just talking to some characters in the game and I was having fun talking to them. Like I was saying things or at least having dialogue options that I could choose that were actually making me laugh and go, Oh, this is great. I can be this person or this person. I, you know, as somebody who's, who's played a lot of sort of the big triple a games in order to kind of be up to speed on like the ongoing conversation. Um, I've played a lot of RPGs that are, are less maybe flexible in terms of what they allow the player to be. Like Dragon Age Inquisition, it really just wants you to be a hero. No matter what you are, it has one kind of person you are supposed to be. Whereas in this, it was like, you know, I could be all sorts of different people. And it was so, so upfront, just right there. Like, I mean, New Vegas had it, but I felt like this was even almost even better at that, just at least right off the bat, just defining the person. You know, and, and to me, that's what makes an RPG is the ability to define your relationship with the world. So as soon as I'm, you know, in this thing and there's this pirate dude trying to take over my ship and he's like, you know, I'm going to kill you all if you don't do whatever. I'm just like immediately like, yeah, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill you, dude. And, you know, I got to be like this cool person or I could have been afraid. I could have been a coward. Like I could have been all these different people. And since I picked a rogue as my, my class type. I tried to pick dialogue options that I felt would fit a rogue, like that that fit the personality of a person who might have grown up on the streets, you know, the person who had knives in their pockets at all times and who robbed people who were richer than them. You know, I tried to define this person using a lot of the dialogue, and I felt the game let me be that person. And then as I played... I still try to be like a rogue with a heart of gold, you know, like Han Solo after he figures he wants to be the good guy, right? So I was playing this this lady and trying to make her do that same thing. And I've gradually found my patience with some of the characters wearing thin, not because they were poorly written, but because they are... Like, there's a, there's a queen who rules the Empire, right? And there are very poor people under her rule. So she talks about how great she is. And everyone's all like, oh yeah, she's amazing. But they're not even providing enough food for the people who need it. And yet they have, you know, all this stuff. And they're... I got really mad that they were talking about how great they were when all these other people were suffering. And so finally, at the near the end of the game, I actually snapped and I was like, I'm actually going to kill all of you. And so I... I kind of my character lost it, right? And I started fighting everyone who was in my way, and I got to the point where literally all of the city's guards turned on me. Um, there was a mild bit of disappointment there, where the queen just kind of disappeared, and the game was like, "Oh yeah, she went into hiding." And I was like, "Man, I should have been able to commit regicide there. That was awesome." But <laughs> it, I got to be this person and then sort of organically shape their narrative. Whereas a lot of a lot of other RPGs, especially in the AAA space, are kind of like, they give you some options and then they bring you back to a junction point and then they give you more options and then they bring you back. So it always kind of funnels you through specific story beats. And there was more flexibility here. Um, you know, I was able to solve certain quests one way or another way. I was able to upset certain people when I could have been their friends another way. I broke into a place one night and stole some stuff which messed with somebody or, you know, there's just... There's a lot of flexibility there, and this is something that Obsidian has always prided themselves on doing, but I was kind of 
bored a little bit with the, the first Phil's Fraternity. Um, I, I stopped playing it when I heard the DLC was coming out, and I had I just ended up playing a bunch of other games instead. It's a shame, because the White yeah. March is generally considered uh, one of the best parts of the original Pillars of Eternity, especially Part 2. I'm planning on getting back to it, um, especially mm. because uh, as soon as I finished Pillars of Eternity 2, I was like, I'm going to do some things different next time. And that's that's a very rare thing to do, right? Like Most of the time I finish a game, I'm like, cool, that's done. I will probably never play that again. Um, I like to play as many games as possible to learn as much about games as I can. Um, good or bad, it doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to absorb everything. So I rarely go back and replay games, especially if they're really long. But with Pillars of Eternity 2, um, I think Dishonored 2 was the last game where I was really like, yeah, I'm going to replay this, but I'm going to do a lot of things different. And that's really awesome. I love when I have the kind of choices that make me feel that um, my experience is going to be radically different. Um, so I think for me, yeah, that was that was the thing. Is It's one of the, the games that really lets you double down on, on being whoever you want to be. Because a lot of games promise that. But very few games actually let you do it. It's like, be who you want to be. You can either be a mage or a paladin or a rogue, and that's all you got. Which <laughs> is, you know, not really who I want to be. Maybe I want to be a bard. You don't know. You know, so... It's it, funny it's, because... Um, yeah. You mentioned that Obsidian really prides themselves on being able to be who you want to be, and you you see that in their other games, certainly. I think a lot of people would say that's a case in Fallout New Vegas, for example. Oh, but yeah, for sure. ultimately, your identity is based on who you decide to align yourself with. And yeah, you can do evil things, and there are plenty of terrible things you can do, like allowing the cannibalism thing to go ahead, for example, but it loses just a little bit in the fact that your character is effectively mute. Yeah, you're choosing these long dialogue options and everything and you can kind of imagine it in your head but you're never seeing you're never actually seeing that reflected in the way that your character interacts with the world as it were it's actually a little stronger in follow-up four i feel but then once again your character is sort of a cipher and there's a whole story in follow-up four about how you're chasing your son whatever that doesn't really that never mattered to me i didn't care yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, so it sounds like to me you're saying that, that one thing that makes this work more for you is maybe having characters uh, who visually represented, Visually represented, uh, like watching the characters uh, reflect the choices that I made, right? I, I think actually one of the best examples for me of being able to put together my own narrative, at least through, Mass, uh, at least through the first two is Mass Effect 1 and 2, because I had my whole narrative arc going with that character, where I initially started off as very pro-human, like very not having a lot of heart, not a lot of time for other species, determined to like make humanity's way in space, and so and that was my excuse for playing Renegade, right? Right. And so I made all the Renegade choices. I killed the uh, the bug aliens, the Rachni. I uh, ultimately decided, I, I decided to let the console die at the end of the first game. And then in the second game, when I joined up with Cerberus and went even more Renegade, I started to have a change of heart. And my character definitely softened a lot. And I really enjoyed the arc that I was kind of putting together unintentionally throughout Mass Effect 1 and 2. Uh, huh. And it felt like my character had had her eyes opened by being with all of these alien characters, right? And, and I think that the writing facilitated that a little bit because it all felt actually very fluid and very natural as I made the choices. It didn't railroad me specifically just because I was picking Renegade choices. And I always thought that one of the great shames of Mass Effect 3 was that at the end of the day... Um, it it punished. It, it felt like I was punished pretty harshly uh, for making renegade style choices, right? Like it got a lot more black and white, and I really enjoyed in the first two games that it felt like there could be shades of gray moving between the two different morality points. So that's always stuck out to me over the years in terms of defining how my character actually acts in a game. That makes sense. I I played as a paragon the entire time, at least through my first playthrough, because I was like. These guys are really strong. They're very powerful. I want to put my best face forward. You know, I want to try to be... 
I want to prove to them that I'm worthy, right? So I played as this very sort of positive paragon character. Um, you know, I was trying to be like, hey, don't mess it up for the rest of us. So when I came across Cerberus, it was like, oh, man, these people are going to ruin it for humanity, you know? So it's really interesting, that, you know, how we were able to sort of create those internal, like, here's how we want to be perceived, even though the game may not necessarily allow that. Mm-hmm. I've... I, I've always enjoyed um, the non-voiced sort of isometric angle in games. Um, one of my favorite RPGs, which ironically I've never actually finished, is uh, Arcanum of Steamworks and Magic Obscura, which super long name. It was made by the guys, I believe, who made uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines later. Um, you, it's It's got a really cool sort of steampunk-style fantasy universe. And I don't know. I, I never felt like I needed the... I needed the, or at least wanted the performance that that like Mass Effect did, um, and yet while I say that, I noticed when playing Pillars of Eternity that I cared more about Dragon Age Origins. Um, Pillars of Eternity is great, right? Or, or two, I mean, you know, Deadfire, it's amazing. I love it, but there was something about Dragon Age Origins that stuck with me more, and so I've been trying to kind of figure out what that is. Why did I connect a little bit more closely? With, with Dragon Age Origins, even though it's got less options, it's it definitely wants you to go a certain direction, you know, it's kind of a generic fantasy setting, it's like trying to be the most fantasy game possible, so, you know, it's got elves, it's got dwarves, it's, you know, it's, it's very traditional fantasy. Well, I think and, the characters, I mean, to start with, sorry to cut you off a little bit, oh, is, yeah. go for it. I just think that Dragon Age Origins uh, characters are... Uh, ultimately, they may just be archetypes, like you got Morgan, the vaguely emo kind of witch. Right. But you spend so much time talking to them, and of course, voice acting helps, uh, and like the actual animated cutscenes, as opposed to uh, simpler kind of dialogue boxes uh, that I think are voiced, but I don't remember. But uh, the the point is, is that Dragon Age is a lot more elaborate in the way that it presents the actual characters, which I think necessarily. Uh, endears you to them a little bit more. Um, also, think, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I was going with that. Yeah. Is it, when you have those scenes, like you actually get to talk to like Alistair by the fireside, and he he gets to emote that he is sad, and you know you see his face frown, and you hear his voice sound sadder. Like, yeah, I had characters like Shoti um, in in Deadfire talk to me, and their performances are really good. The voice performances in Deadfire are actually amazing. Um, but I think being able to see characters have that, that aspect of physical performance. I think I, I played Origins mostly isometric because on the PC that, that was an option. It was awesome. But when you had all the cutscenes and any of the conversations, it was right up in there and you got physical performance. And I think the physical performance connected me better to the game. So getting back to Deadfire really quickly. So the original Pillars of Eternity was an isometric RPG. Uh, there was a god of death who constantly resurrected. It was it was actually very creepy, and you were chasing after this god um, as they really messed things up for a lot of people, and it was a, kind of a slow burn. You had various misfits, like you had a mad cleric on your team and that kind of thing. Uh, you had a castle, a very empty castle that you could build up. Um, yeah, he blows up your castle in the opening cutscene of, of Deadfire, and a big chunk of the intro to Deadfire is there's like a big text box that says what happened in Pillars of Eternity and then it's like he blew up your castle and you're mad about it and then they do a cutscene where they do the exact same thing right after that which is weird but yeah it it was it, it tells you exactly what happened in Pillars of Eternity it picks up right there R.I.P. The your castle which a lot of people said was kind of the not a great part of Pillars of Eternity didn't work out super well uh pillars of eternity 2 takes place in the Deadfire archipelago and this time you're basically a pirate and (laughs) yeah do you want to just lay out the premise really quickly so the god of death is back he's still a jerk he kills you so another god brings you back to life and says you work for me now or i'll i don't know make sure you die again um you know and she's like so you have to chase him down and find out what he wants so that's that's basically what you do is you chase him down. Um, instead of a castle, you now have a boat. That's your main base of operations. So 
you get to sail around this huge world map. You can like intercept other boats. You can be a pirate. You can meet with all these really cool factions and um, you know partner up with them or not. It's very much like Fallout 4, uh, the way the, that Fallout 4 had those like four main factions you finally pick at the end. So through most of the game, you're just kind of you're trying to meet people, build up reputation, and chase this giant god down. Um, and as you do, because he's he's in a, like he's huge. There are screenshots of the game I took where he's just like filling the entire background. One thing they did really well is, is a lot of the scenes take place on cliffs, so you can see this huge like city down below or whatever. It's great. But uh, you're just chasing him down um, and trying to figure out what he wants. And at the end, it's kind of like, do you want to let him do what he wants to do or not? And you know, there's it. It, it depends on what you've kind of worked out through the entire game is what kind of future you want the world to have. In some ways, it's it's very much a typical RPG, um, at least in terms of plot. Like I, I don't know if I would recommend anyone play the game for the plot. It's more about that sort of moment-to-moment interpersonal interaction that's really interesting to me. Because um, the plot's just like, the world's in danger, stop this big dude, you know. But the like character stuff is... I mean, I had a guy leave my party because I found an ancient secret that his order was protecting that even he didn't know about. And I made a decision that disrespected the order. And so he was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm gone and left. Like, it's uh, There's a lot of possibilities, but it's all that sort of react or the party interaction that's really interesting to me. That's what I liked about the game. The first game was extremely dense. It was a very dense RPG. The characters were dense. The battles were hard. Uh, you had to spend a lot of time recuperating energy, and Deadfire goes about trying to streamline it. Uh, one of the key complaints that I've seen is that the the battles are a lot easier this time, and there are some people complaining about that. Uh, I was wondering what your outlook on that is. I, I really like the difficulty level. Um how do I put this? I was playing. I play every game on normal the first time. If I really like the game, I'll come back on a higher difficulty level. But I generally try to play it on sort of the intended difficulty level first, just to kind of get the experience the game was designed for. Once I come to grips with the systems, then I come back through in a higher difficulty to be, you know, rewarded. Right. So I went through it. I liked the difficulty level. I never. Uh, there was a couple of fights where I felt a little bit challenged, especially the the last boss fight. But um, I don't know. It, I like it, but it had this problem of being unreadable at times. There were, it has so many particle effects. It has characters who explode when you kill them and all this other stuff. And it feels great, right? Like just stabbing you know, a guy and watching him it turn into a huge cloud of blood mist, it, it feels great. But sometimes it's hard to see what's going on <laughs> and who to target and all this stuff. And it doesn't make the game more challenging. It just makes the game more annoying. Uh, readability, I think, is one of the most important things to have in a game. Um, it's like it's why the the bosses in Bloodborne are so great. They all have these really good animated tells that lets you know what's happening. So a good player can kind of figure out what's going on and can react appropriately, right? Every good game has good tells. And it's... Pillars of Eternity 2, like, it feels better to play. The feedback is amazing, but sometimes it's just hard to read. But no, nah, it's not... I mean, I did. there are higher level, like, higher difficulty levels that I did not pick, and I imagine the game's more challenging on on that, but I enjoyed what I played. Like, I, I put a... I think I did one 15-hour play session. I just couldn't put it down. Wow. Like, I... I really like this game. Like as much as much crap as I want to give it. Sometimes, I had I think a 15 hour and then a 13 hour play session with it. Like I was just playing it nonstop. I did not want to play anything else at the time. Uh, I mean, that tells you all you need to know, right? I mean, that it really it grabbed you to that extent. It seems to me that the line that is being drawn in the Pillars of Eternity community, uh, there are the people who are basically saying they much prefer Pillars of Eternity because they're in their mind. It's a denser, meatier, more intense experience that the that the storytelling is more interesting. Ultimately, that it the linear design uh, helps it out a lot. And then the people who are coming out of with Deadfire are basically saying, "Well, I really like the freedom that it affords me. I love sailing around on my ship." I 
I like the quality of life improvements to the combat. I like how much more impactful it feels. And um, so it's been an interesting, it's been interesting to watch the back and forth. Um, and you played both games. So I was kind of wondering what your outlook on that was. Well, like I said, I did like a you know mammoth fifteen hour play session with this game. Right, I beat it in like I think four days. Wow! But I have like thirty five hours in it, so like I I spent a lot of time playing it. Uh, I never finished Pillars of Eternity, so maybe that tells you right there. There you go. What, tells you all you need feeling. to know. But you know, there is something really cool about like this huge world map. Right, it's covered in clouds, and you send your boat off in a direction to kind of clean out that part of the map, and then you find an island, and you're like, ooh, what's this? And then you go on the island, and you explore around, and you find some stuff, and sometimes it's just like a text log. It's just like, hey, you picked up some stuff, or it pulls up its little elaborate storybook thing, and it goes, hey, you met a guy here, and the guy wants to talk to you, and you can like talk to the guy in some text options without like loading into the map and having your party move around. Other times, you actually go to a place and explore that place and do things in that place, and Soon you've got an island discovered, and then you look around, you find another island, and you go there, and you kind of it. It's really good at getting that sort of ah, just one more island or just one more turn type feeling, and you know, then you start naming islands, and then you suddenly start taking all the bounties you can, and then you're sinking enemy ships, and before you know it, you're kind of the most powerful pirate on the <laughs> seven seas in there. I mean, it's one sea, right? But it feels great. Like, it's really good at kind of suckering you into just doing one more thing. Um, it's it's almost as good, for me at least, as Divinity Original Sin 2 Ooh. and um, The Witcher 3, which are my two top RPGs of the generation, right? It's really good. And it's especially good at just getting me to want to play more. Whereas, like, Pillars of Eternity 1, I think I think you mentioned earlier, it's got kind of that slow burn. Mm. And, you know, I got to a point where it's just like, I've played enough for the night, I'll come back to this later, and then, you know, here it is, like, three years later, and I, I still haven't done it yet. Um, Deadfire, somebody well, was observing that Deadfire is much better at laying out the stakes and everything that you want to do right from the start. Whereas Pillars of Eternity is a lot murkier about your general motivations and what you're trying to accomplish. And it slowly but surely kind of unfurls over the course of many hours of play. And perhaps that makes it a little harder to stay fully invested. Yeah, I think so. Because the first game is like, what's going on? And the second game, you already know all of that information. So in the second game, it's like, you know the cycle of death and rebirth? that's going to get broke. You need to fix that immediately. That's like the first few minutes of the game. So it very clearly lays out the stakes. I'm personally not one of those people who enjoys like, oh, the universe is at stake. You need to go save it. Because to me, that's that's really abstract. I like to have like personal connections. So I tend to like slow burns. Like I like to meet somebody, become friends with them, and then, you know, maybe they get murdered or kidnapped or whatever. And then I'm like, oh, well, you know, now I'm going to John Wick everything up, right? Um and so I could have gone either way on, on, on it, but I do think it does a good job of kind of creating more immediate needs. Like in Pillars of Eternity 1, you kind of like head into town, I think. Um, like your your party gets like attacked and then you're like, you see something and then you, you show up in town. It's very, very slow. Whereas in Pillars of Eternity 2, it's like as soon as they've done the intro, you're shipwrecked. Like immediately in a storm, you're on an island, you need to gather your party and survive. So it has more sort of intimate personal needs like right away. It also takes longer to gather a party in the original pillars of eternity. I feel, uh, in the original pillars of eternity, you're, you're slowly picking people up as you're kind of wandering around the map and they're kind of just there on the map. Yeah. I think I got, uh, two thirds of my party within the first five hours of the game. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really quick, uh, because you gotta, got a crew. Yeah, yeah. It, partly it is because you need a crew. Uh, partly you already have like a lot of your crew. Um, I think two or three of the main characters from Pillars of Eternity that were in your party like show up like immediately, um, and then you meet like Shoti like really early on. She's my favorite character in the game, by the way. Um, she's like this fangirl of the god that you're chasing, so she has a huge crisis of faith when you actually meet him. 
and you know they say you should never meet your heroes right and she does and then she's like do i question my whole identity do i not so her arc was really fun but you hear it in um, her first religious people never meet your god (laughs) that's that's yeah that's about right it does have the the obsidian problem of being super wordy um every obsidian game maybe spends too much time giving you plenty of information this is a game for lore nerds if you love lore this game was made for you but every game they make is like this and sometimes the drama gets lost in the moment like the the witcher is very good at you know do this do this right now you know this is what's important this is what's at stake this is what you need this is what you want this is what's in the way whereas obsidian's more like ah yes do you have 30 minutes to talk about lore um, one thing they did that's really nice that I don't remember seeing in Pillars of Eternity 1 is if you see certain words that you don't understand, you can hover over it with the mouse and it'll like bring up a tooltip that explains more lore for you, which is great sometimes. Are you a lore nerd? I'm not really. Neither I, I am tend I. To prefer dr- I tend to prefer drama. I used to be a lore nerd. I used to be the kind of person who... So when I bought Return to Zork many, 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 many moons ago... It right. came with a, a manual called the Encyclopedia Frobosica, which was just... Okay. okay. It was an encyclopedia with all of the, the Zork stuff. And I read that thing cover to cover so many times because there wasn't a lot to do in 1994. And what else was right. I going to read? Yeah, I did I did something similar with the, uh, the Halo novels. I read every single one. Wow. That was out at least at the time. I, I stopped years ago. They they've done like twenty novels since. But at the time, I, I just I wanted to read all of them. I wanted to learn more about Halo. I love the universe, right? So I I get that, right? But for me, um, especially you know coming out of film school and film production, um, which is probably where I learned a lot of my my game design tastes was learning how media is made and what audiences are interested in. Um, you know most film scripts you know what you want to do within the first 15 minutes of the movie. Um, Rocky is an outlier in that it takes 30 minutes to figure out where Rocky needs to be in life. But most movies do it pretty quick. And games are still really bad at motivation. Um, You know, one thing people say about the Far Cry games, like I've heard people criticize their stories and all, but everybody seems to kind of universally agree that Ubisoft is amazing at intros to those Far Cry games. Yes. And I got to agree, like Far Cry 3, right? You're in a cage like immediately and then you break out and you're running away with dogs chasing you and people shooting at you or... You know, I just played Far Cry 4's intro again recently to compare it to 5's for, you know, just personal interest. And that's a really good intro. Like, every intro that they do is really good. And most games are really bad at that. They're very, very, very slow. And Pillars of Eternity 2, it's quicker than the first game, but it's still, like, it gives me this huge text to read immediately and then just follows that up just right after that with, you know the same thing in a cutscene as they walk very slowly down a path and hear all the cutscenes from the last game playing in the background. It's, it's not fun. Um, it was more fun to just be on that pirate ship and have guys attacking me and be like, what's going on? And just go from there. So I wish games were quicker at times. And this is one thing I, I like about uh, Disco Elysium, which is an upcoming RPG by uh, Studio Zalm, I think they're called. Um, it, it basically starts up with you drunk and asleep and you're talking to yourself about you know whether or not you should wake up today and then you just like pretty much immediately get into things there's soon discussion about um dead bodies outside and a strike going on it sets everything up really quickly it's more interested in kind of getting you moving i really enjoyed that plus it's got a really good sense of character but that's we just, that game's not going to be out for a bit. We just, I think it's coming out this year, though. We just did a fairly lengthy piece on the site that you should go read about why the White Orchard in Witcher 3 works so well. I have that tab open. Yeah. I, I saw the tweet and I was like, I got to read this because I love the White Orchard. Yeah, Mike, <laughs> Mike Laidlaw, uh, who was the creative director of the Dragon Age series, said that it was the best tutorial sequence he's ever seen. Yeah, I could believe that. That's really good. <laughs> Yeah, and like I, it works because it's a mini version of The Witcher 3 world, and it it's kind of your training wheels, but it also does a fantastic job of establishing the lore and the stakes in really subtle and interesting ways through just really simple quests. And 
by the end, it's basically kind of your taster of like, well, this is what the game is. You want to keep playing? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the success of that is why Horizon Zero Dawn did the same thing. Um, although Horizon's a little bit more linear than The Witcher is. Like, The Witcher lets you know that sandbox pretty much immediately, whereas Horizon has, you know, you have to become a brave before it lets you out. But, uh, or not, it's like right before, whatever. Anyways, I, I think there's, I think they took some inspiration from The Witcher for that. And I, I think those sort of little sandbox get, you know, training wheel sequences, like you say, I think those are really useful. But I, I do think The White Orchard is probably the best one so far. So getting back to the game you were talking about previously, you said that it was one of your favorite games in a while. Like, it, it even has a chance to be one of your favorite RPGs ever. So what about that game just grabs you? Disco Elysium? Or? Yeah, Disco Elysium. Uh, so I think part of it was just the sheer volume of possibilities early on. Rather than like a character creation menu, you know, you do things like you look in the mirror and the the description is like, oh god, is that really your face? And then it's like, try to make a smile. So you can try to make a smile. And it's like, do you really want to smile at anything right now? And you know, there's this sort of a sense of banter between you and sort of the, the narrator or whatever that is that is really playful and enjoyable. There's there's a sense of character to it that's really cool. And like within the first two minutes, you can flirt and fail miserably with somebody. Um, it has like a really high resistance check because you are hungover, you know, or you're missing a shoe and you're trying to figure out where your shoe goes. So you immediately go into like detective mode and you're trying to figure out what happens to your shoe. And then you realize that when you were drunk last night, you threw it out the window. <laughs> that's why your window's broken. It does a really good job sort of characterizing what a sort of sad, low-life detective is. Like in a lot of noir stories, the, you know, Sam Spade or whatever, those those guys aren't rich, successful, everybody loves them, right? Even, you know, Jake Giddis from Chinatown has, you know, his dark past and is kind of a pathetic loser who becomes more beat up as the movie progresses. Like, all these stories have sort of the sad sack detective feel. And it's something I've never really seen in a game that I really enjoyed. Hmm. It's the first time somebody actually felt like they nailed it for me. Like, L.A. Noir, like, Cole Phelps is not somebody I like. No, he's a fundamentally unlikable character, I would, go, I would venture to say. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. So most detectives aren't really interesting, and most of the, the mysteries they're trying to solve also aren't really interesting. Detective mechanics are one thing I think games aren't good at yet. Yeah, I mean, you see games basically aping Witcher 3 a little bit. Yep. Um, in terms of how they handle tracking and mystery solving. But I would venture to say that the tracking and that sort of thing in Witcher 3 was probably the least interesting part of the mechanics in that game. I mean, it was okay, but it was just walk around, press a prompt, right? Find the prompt. You just bat vision, right? Or smell a vision. Yeah, (laughs) smell a vision. In, In this, in Disco Elysium, it spends a lot more time being in your own head like most games have dialogue options with other people right disco elysium has dialogue with yourself it's an internal monologue a lot of the game is about you solving problems coming to conclusions you have this thing called a thought cabinet which i haven't fully explored yet because the demo's fairly short but like you you equip thoughts in your head certain specific thoughts and then if you continue to keep those thoughts in your head, eventually they become a part of you and you cannot remove them. So as a detective, you try to like, you you get new thoughts from exploring things and discovering options, then you equip those thoughts and that shapes how you investigate things. So one of the, one of my favorite game developers of all time, Doug Church, he he worked at um, Looking Glass back in the day. They created System Shock and stuff like that. He works at Valve now, um, supposedly on Left 4 Dead 3. Uh, he had this idea of, of immersive sims as games where you would take this like very specific role. Like in Thief, you are just a thief. And then they'd put as much depth as possible into that. Whereas Warren Spector, who also worked with Looking Glass and later did stuff like Deus Ex and Epic Mickey and stuff like that, he's working on System Shock 3 now. Um, Warren Spector's whole thing was be as broad as possible. So when you play Deus Ex, right, you have a you have a swimming skill. You have, you know, all these like different ways to approach things, and so everyone knows that game is like the game where you can do anything to solve problems. Um, which has kind of shaped a lot of the way modern games are now. So these two guys had sort of opposing 
methodologies. They were like really good friends, but different views on how games should be made. And Disco Elysium is basically a detective game. So it's very focused on how to be a detective and what kind of detective you might be. Your character creation early on, at least in the demo, was like, you know, are you the sort of like sociopathic genius or are you a really empathetic person who maybe isn't super clever like it had these you know different types of person you could be but it's all within the role of being a detective and that lets you get a lot of really interesting depth that i was having fun with until the demo ended and then i got sad that there wasn't more i I cannot wait for that game to come out like i'm so excited to play it it grabbed me in a way that really only Pillars of Eternity 2 and uh, Original Sin 2 had before it. Um, it's really good. Like I, I cannot describe enough how much I like it. It looks really cool. Uh, I, I like how stylized it looks. I, I wish I could add a, kind of a deeper analysis. I think you really broke it down in a great way. But I, we don't have enough detective RPGs, weirdly. I mean, so many RPGs, I mean, obviously, because of the D&D lineage, I mean, fantasy is a big thing. Sci-fi, those are comfortable, dependable settings, right? But it's, it's, partly, it's partly because video games are very good at certain things, and they're very bad at other things. And one of the things that they're really bad at is interpersonal um, interactions, right? It's very, very easy to... I, I've been playing State of Decay 2, right? It's very easy to see a zombie and go, ah, that place is dangerous. I won't go there. And you go through a whole human thought process of goals, right? Planning how to do this, how to do that. That's very easy to do. Whereas in a detective game, there's things like logic and deduction. Like how do you come to a conclusion that could be right or could be wrong? In most games, you're just going to get like three text options and you just have to pick from one of those. So you know one of them is correct. It becomes a, a multiple choice game. Yeah, I, I think that a game like, say, Papers, Please is a good hint as to how to deal with deduction and that sort of thing. In Papers, Please, right. it's rapid-fire deduction based on certain clues that you're looking for, but there are no prompts that you're looking for. You're not walking around pressing A to find clue. It is yep. asking you to find the clues yourself as fast as humanly possible. And it's not an easy thing to implement into a game, but... It's a starting point, as it were. Yeah, it's it's something I've been talking with um, my my Paratopic co-creators about. We've been talking about mystery games and how to do that, because we've been talking about Vampire the Masquerade and some other stuff. Um, you know, that sort of, how do you get like an intimate human interaction type game? How do you read people? You know, how does body language work? Stuff like that. Because, um, you know, games don't really do like body language or personal space. You know, it's hard to like... That's one of the things L.A. Noir wanted to do was get really good facial capture so you could read human faces and figure out things, right? So we've been we've been kind of talking about like how do you solve things like that? How do you make it so it's not just find all the clues in the area and then you have a list of clues and then you you know make a choice? And it's it's difficult. Like detective unlock mechanics. the unlock the conversation prompt. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's it's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. I think figuring out how to make human interaction in games is going to be a really big part of that. But I mean, it's going to be really hard to do until we figure out like natural language processing or something where you can, you know, like ask a character a question in the game and then they can give you a response. Um, Cause right now the writer has to come up with, or the designer has to come up with all the possible questions you could ask. You know, they have to anticipate what you would ask and that's a ton of work to do. I mean, wouldn't that be but, something that an AI could potentially do? Potentially, yeah, that would be the that'd be the ideal future is where you can have like maybe procedurally generate the mystery and then populate the character knowledge based on that who actually witnessed something. That could be fascinating. You know, character relationships, stuff like that. Yes, you know, I I, that's, I don't know anything about hard. machine learning really outside of the fact that it's a buzzword, but it sure yeah. seems like these are interesting ways to solve potential gameplay or game design dilemmas. Um. Anyway, Doc, you are well known for having very strong opinions on things. You do this all of I the like to think so. all of the time on the Twitter. You've been known to come on our site from time to time and relay these very well-founded, frankly, well-researched and very interesting opinions on our site. I really enjoyed 
For example, your Breath of the Wild article from last year where you really broke down why it worked and why maybe it shouldn't have worked as well as it did. And he also did a, a two really phenomenal breakdowns of Destiny 2. So I, I guess I'm going to put you on the spot and say, give me an RPG hot take right now. Uh, well, my hottest RPG take is is probably that that I don't think JRPGs are RPGs. Oh, <laughs> that's probably my my hottest. Uh, um, I mean, JRPGs you know, it, are just a different animal. They come from the same roots, my friend. I mean, Dragon Quest like der- it derived directly from friggin' Wizardry and Ultima. Yeah. So, and this is what I think is really interesting is you know when you say like JRPGs aren't RPGs, right? A lot of people immediately take that as a put down. Hmm. And I think it's because for a while, I remember a lot of the video game discourse was like, my friends were all like, well, RPGs are like the ultimate form of what a game can be because they have these really compelling stories. Like, you know, Doom doesn't really have a compelling story, right? But Final Fantasy VII has this really big, epic, sprawling story. So a lot of my friends really preferred that. And so they kind of, RPG means good to them. I think that kind of becomes sort of this primal thing. So when you say JRPG isn't an RPG, a lot of people see that as a put down. Whereas I don't, I don't really think it is. To me, it's like this really cool thing is... I always feel like mislabeling something is kind of doing it a disservice, right? Like if somebody says a third-person shooter and the first-person shooter are the same thing, it's like, no, they have totally different things going on, and that's they're really interesting differences. I like differences. Differences are interesting to me. So you're right. They did start in the same place. But um, so it was what? Yuji Hori, I think, right? I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I'm, I'm bad at pronouncing things. You know, he, he goes and he plays, I think, Wizardry two or something and then like ultima four maybe and he sees him he's like wow these are really cool i want to make a game like this and so he goes back to japan and you know they, they come up with dragon warrior dragon quest whatever they called it for originally and he he doubled down on a lot of the elements of an rpg or at least what you know computer rpg designers were trying to make at the time and he took that in a really specific direction. Whereas if you go like watch Ultima, right? If you if you look at how Ultima evolves over time, you can see that Richard Garriott is going, okay, let's make even more simulation elements. One of my favorite articles about any video game ever is about Ultima 7. I've never played it myself, so it, it may be kind of inaccurate, my, my recollection, but it was like this guy who was writing this said... Uh, he really liked it because he watched a baker baking bread in the game. And he thought, I wonder if I can bake bread. And so he repeated all the actions the baker did, and then he was able to make bread. And every Ultima game gets sort of more and more advanced until like 8 or 9 when EA takes over and it gets really bad. But like, they were kind of working more towards taking the, the abstractions of like what an RPG could do and be, the character relationships, character dynamics, and all this stuff, and translate that into a game experience. So JRPGs kind of took the what RPGs were sort of limited by in the 80s and then turned that into its own thing. They were like, actually, this is really cool. It's not just a limitation. It's a strength. It's, a, it's its own unique thing. And they took this in a really interesting direction. I mean, I have my Vita right here. I have Digimon Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory on it. I have 200 plus hours in that game. I love certain JRPGs, you know? Earthbound, amazing, until I discovered grinding, um, which was a mechanic I didn't enjoy at the time. But, you know, I really like where JRPGs went. But to me, like what I see is like an RPG, right? To me, that's still very much like the tabletop experience, the idea of, I guess if I were to put it into one really short sentence, I would say an RPG is a game where you define your relationship to the world around you. Um, And so the more you can sort of define the person you are, the more interesting the RPG is to me, which is why I like Disco Elysium. It's why I like The Witcher 3, where, you know, Geralt can be one of many different possible Geralts. Or, you know, even New Vegas, Fallout 4, stuff like this, they all have this kind of, be the person you want to be, whereas in, in Hacker's Memory, which I'm playing right now, I really like it, but it's a very linear story. It's more about the party elements, it's about leveling up your characters, it's a monster-raising game as well as a JRPG, so there's this really interesting you know, monster dynamic going on where I'm planning my evolution and devolution routes so I can build the perfect monster. You know, There's really fun elements to it, but to me they're two completely different and equally interesting subjects. Um, and, you know, different people feel different ways about it, but, you know, as hot takes go, you know, I, I try to at least, I try to at least be somewhat, you know, 
interesting about those takes. Mm. If my take was really boring, I wouldn't share it. Um, I have, you know, I have thousands of takes, right? But I only share the the ones I think people might debate me on. You know, they might they might want to disagree on, or at least. You know, I just I find that it's not something you'd hear every day. I find that an interesting take, and your hard and fast rule about what an RPG is, I almost agree with. Uh, because I've said in the mm-hmm. past that uh, to me, an RPG is a game where you have you get to make meaningful choices about how those the world and the story actually unfold, and that right. can that can take many different forms, right? I mean, that form could be I am making actual choices about what my character looks like and how they're reacting to a situation, or it could be here are the party members that I choose to take with me. Here's how I'm customizing my characters like loadout. Because if you go back to the very bedrock of freaking RPGs, which was Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons was multiple elements, right? You had the actual role-playing, but some of the role-playing was bound up in how you customize your character. And oh, yeah, for that's sure. always, and that has taken many different forms over the years in JRPGs. I mean, at base, quote-unquote JRPG, it's literally just... This game happened to be developed in Japan and it has a certain lineage going back to Dragon Quest. But like, I, I think that a game like Persona, for example, affords you a lot of control over how your character develops and how uh, events unfold and how you design everything. This is about as much of an RPG as RPG can possibly be, right? So, Yeah, for, sh- for sure. It's, it's, you know, I always would hesitate to be like, a JRPG is an RPG from Japan, right? Because I, I do feel that, like like you say, you know, I think, you know, Dragon's Dogma, for in- instance, is leans more towards what we would consider, you know, or at least I would consider an RPG. Most people would consider a, a WRPG, right? I think it leans more that direction. Um, whereas, like, I've, I started Final Fantasy IX the other day. You know, that leans more of the what we would definitely call a JRPG, mm. what I would maybe call some sort of adventure game, right? And I really like it. Um, you know, then you got games that are in the really weird gray space, like the, uh, what, Suikoden games? Um, I have no idea if that's pronounced correctly. Uh, you know, from Konami, right? They have, you have like hundreds of people you can get to join your party, and that affects things. There's an influence there, you know? So there's definitely a spectrum Sure. I mean, is, you look at yeah. You look at just what the game is focused on, right? Um, Final Fantasy IX wants to tell a story. Full stop. It's telling a story. It's it's borderline a visual novel with combat, right? Whereas yep. a game like Diablo it doesn't have a story. It has a story, quote unquote. But really, it's just get the loots. I remember when I said to a friend once, I would love to play a game with the gameplay of Diablo, but like it's an RPG. And he looked at me like I was, you know an alien or something <laughs> what does that even mean right diablo is an rpg it's an action well, rpg i was like it defines it so much of any... what we know as rpgs now like even stuff like skill trees right um yeah, and yeah. how we define the characters and like loot and it takes very specific elements of D and roguelikes both of yep. which i mean roguelikes have a lineage from D and turns it into something new and very interesting um and it's kind of its own branch of of this genre and we've been having this discussion since well before this podcast ever happened going all the way back to act the days of active time Avalon one up and i mean the conclusion ultimately is that <laughs> rpgs you know like there are so many it's almost stupid to put a game into a particular box but it's a fun discussion yeah. to have <laughs> Yeah, it is really fun to have. It's the only reason I ever I ever have that, right? Like as much as I enjoy having weird takes, right? And it's fun to it's fun to get somebody to like respond to you with something completely bizarre. Like I had somebody say, you know, that some game I really enjoyed wasn't an RPG because all RPGs must have parties. They must have bestiaries and a few other things. And I'm like sitting there and I'm like, well, that's a stupid really, take, dude. That's what you consider an RPG. And it was really interesting to have that discussion, though, to hear that from. So somebody. Witcher Three isn't but, an RPG, okay? Yeah, like you could you could go. Well, it's the same people who are that. like, well, RPGs have to have turn-based combat. Right, right, exactly. And I like hearing those takes. Right, it's always really interesting to hear what people think about the world around them. 
for me, I'm never going to try to like argue for a reclassification of the JRPG and the RPG, right? It is what it is. It's it's part of the language now. There's there's nothing an individual could do to change it. That's okay. So what I've taken to doing is saying I want games with proper roleplay or something because roleplay itself is a really interesting idea dating back to like old acting schools where it was it's all about improvisation like people say oh well playing a role and roleplay are the same thing it's like no they're not playing a role is like there's a script and you follow it roleplay is like okay you are a dentist from mars and you are a bus driver you two have just met have a conversation and then you got to figure it out right and I really like roleplay. I like improvisation. I like that in mechanics. That's interesting to me. So I try to focus more on that than I do just going, ah, yes, genre classifications, like, let's argue about that. But I do enjoy the argument sometimes because they have, there's interesting comments that Well, it happen, makes you think more deeply you know? about the games, right? It makes you think about exactly what exactly the, the game itself is trying to accomplish. And I think in that sense, it's a worthwhile conversation to have. Yeah, I think any interesting take is one that creates a productive discussion, or at least an interesting discussion, something that you can take something away from. You know, it's uh, it's easy to just drop a hot take that's like, you know, X is not Y, you know, this is good, this is bad, it's very easy to do that, but it just kind of, that's all it is. So I've been trying to perfect the art of the interesting hot take, which is why I've had so many threads over the years, you know, trying to have interesting threads, because that's more... The goal, the goal as always, is to to learn or at least to create something interesting. Um, like that's that's you know what I try to do with my articles, right? If somebody else has said the take, I won't pitch that piece anymore. Like as soon as I find <laughs> out somebody else has said it, I won't do that because I can't add to that discussion. So for me, I, I think some people are like you know, oh doc, you're so unique. No, no, I'm really not. I have so many vanilla takes, completely vanilla takes. It's just that I, I try to only choose to share the the ones that i think might get the fiery ones going. yeah yeah ideally so that's you know i say things like well you know rage's ending is identical to half-life 2's ending and yet you all call half-life 2 a masterpiece why is that doc's, fa- doc's uh, favorite whipping boy half-life oh yeah i love trashing half-life only because it's like a sacred cow right i'm not gonna do that for like a game that everyone dishes on because everyone dishes on it right no point so it's not like a like some people like oh well doc you're a contrarian right i don't want to be a contrarian it's more that like i don't want to pick the easy targets because that's boring so you know i share pretty much everyone's opinion on certain games no point in sharing that really (laughs) all right doc so pillars of eternity 2 dead fire definitely get a thumb up from you disco elysium a game that we should definitely be keeping an eye on. Uh, some previews have gone out to a few places, PC Gamer, RPS, um, and you to you. Uh, so it's something that we will be definitely watching. And of course, uh, check out all of your stuff on the site. Uh, Acts of the Blogout is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, make sure to follow me on all of the relevant social medias. I'm at the underscore cat bot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford and Doc, where can we find you? I am Forget Amnesia on Twitter. Yes, Forget Amnesia on Twitter, where you will find all of the fascinating takes. And also, uh, yeah, make sure to check out Doc's game on itch.io. Um, one more time, what the name is? Paratopic. Parat- it's paratopic, but everyone calls it paratopic, so. And, of course, uh, Doc uh, contributes to the site you know, roughly once a month. We like to get him in to write an essay here or there. He has a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, the most recent one was on GTA 4, um, kind of exploring the really interesting ways. And, like, you made me think... You made me think a lot about how open world games are so friggin' mechanical, and I think that's why I don't like them in a lot of ways. <laughs> For- yeah. Oh, yeah. I was I was trying to figure out why I liked Grand Theft Auto Four despite itself, whereas I loved Saints Row Two a lot. It was figuring out what that was was kind of how I figured out how to write that piece. So you should go read so. that piece as well. Nadia will be back next week. We're going to be. I don't know. It might be time to do an E3 preview. I don't know. We might be doing something else. Uh, Doc, we should have you back sometime to do a Divinity Original Sin 2 spoiler cast. That'd be fun. 
any time, except that because it's a co-op game, I my crew and I still haven't finished it yet. Well, let me know when you finish it. We'll have you back. And Will do. All right. And until then, ha- I hope you had a good Memorial Day or having a good Memorial Day as you listen to this podcast. And until next time, I've been Cabalian for Doc and myself. Thanks for listening. Happy adventuring. <laughs>